This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Friday, July 22nd. Taking a look out at the world of agriculture this morning, we can see that the commodity markets, particularly wheat and corn, are taking it on the chin. We're going to speak with Dwayne Bussey of Bolt Marketing here in just a minute. There's some international news that might be creating this sell-off we're seeing, and we will discuss that. Then we're going to talk with Troy Breedenkamp from the Renewable Fuels Association. The first major lawsuit against E15 sales year-round was filed on Wednesday. Troy, let us know just what to expect as this moves forward. And then in segment three, we are going to talk dairy. The dairy industry has seen a lot of ups and downs. And Tanner Emke, the lead economist for dairy at CoBank, will be joining us to run through what that industry looks like here as we reach the midpoint of the summer in 2022. Folks, we've got a lot coming today, but let's talk markets first. Dwayne Bussey, Bolt Marketing, this wheat market really taking it down 30 to, yeah, 30 cents here in Chicago wheat. What was the big piece of news that's driving this today? Well, overnight, or I should say yesterday afternoon, there was an announcement from Turkey that uh, Russia and Ukraine have a deal, agreed to a deal that will start to let exports from Ukraine out through the Black Sea. But I, I mentioned that Turkey mentioned this because Russia and Ukraine haven't mentioned this deal yet. Um, but the market is taking it as, well, maybe there's going to be some grain movements out of Ukraine. I think we're overdoing it, Mike, to be honest with you. I, I wouldn't doubt if later today we rally back some or or a typical Russia, you know, over the weekend they may bomb the Odessa port in Ukraine or something. I mean, we got to remember this is war. I don't, I don't think Russia's really in the this game to be nice and play friendly, really, even when it comes to world food exports. Yeah, I mean, we haven't seen them really take charge to say we've got to fight this uh, this famine that's going around the world. So it it seems as though this agreement is expected to be signed today. Then they've got to demine the ports to wait. I mean, even if it gets signed, it's not like we're going to see ships full of Ukrainian wheat hitting the Black Sea on Saturday. No, not at all. And and then we got to think, even if all that does happen you know they say it's safe to travel um who wants to really send a ship in there anyway um, what crew wants to go in there and then there's always insurance that they buy on these ships as they go anywhere in the country can you imagine the price of that so that's going to make that probably fairly expensive to do so i'm with you i just there's a whole lot of steps involved uh, to get this done now obviously basis and in, in prices commodity prices will move grain around countries and get it out one way or the other. But I, I'm afraid this Ukrainian wheat's going to leave more export through Russia probably than anything. Well, with that being the case, Dwayne, even if this deal comes to nothing, we're seeing the damage on the charts today with wheat off here in Chicago, 27 to 30 cents. What is a day like today due to the technical picture for the wheat market? You know, actually, right now I'm looking at D Chicago. We we're holding a low that we had on. Oh, let me see, just a few days ago, uh, on the 15th of July. So last Friday's low, we're holding that so far. If we can hold right here and start to come back, it actually looks like a bit of a bottom. I, I'm one that I, I know this wheat market's been really tough lately, but I think it's also going to be the first commodity to bottom for us, and I think we're really near and close to that bottom. Remember, last week's exports in the U.S. was even huge. Um, I was a little disappointed with yesterday's number, but I think we're finally getting to a low enough price where 
the buyers out there in the world are even going to come to the U.S. and buy wheat. So I, I think we're fairly close to a low. I think the funds are out of all long positions, maybe even short a little bit. So you know, we can always go down one more day, no doubt about that. It's hard to pick the bottom, but uh, I feel like we're making a, a U-shaped curve here technically. All right. And maybe that will help bring the focus back to the fundamentals that are moving the grain market. And Dwayne, to that end, it looks like we are going to have a hot, hot weekend. What forecast are the traders watching here as we head into this weekend? I, sadly, I think a little further out than this weekend. Uh, the trade talk the last couple of days has been about a, a change in the weather pattern. The 6 to 10 and 8 to 14 has cooler temps for the Midwest. And actually, some above normal rain stretching from Nebraska across the Iowa, Illinois, of course, you know, so some key areas, right? So that's kind of where the pressures come this week on the corn and soybean markets. But, uh, you know, that being said, that some weather guys are saying you're still going to return back to hot and dry in later August. So we're still smack dab in a weather market. And come Sunday night, you know, especially for the soybean market, that weather forecast is going to be very key. It is. And beans up big today. We saw some uh, some export sales to China and soybeans yesterday. Dwayne, is that maybe a little bit of a tailwind for this market today? I think it sure is helping it, not to mention it maybe just got a little oversold and due for a bounce here, too. You know, we still need to keep that weather premium for another month into this soybean contract. And yeah, we saw some export sales to China, I think about two cargoes so far. But boy, there's rumors of there being 10 to 12 to even more cargoes that they bought this week. So maybe somebody's finding out that some of those rumors are true and they're a little bit ahead of the game in buying the soybean market for next week. Well, watch for some flash sales comes that 8 a.m. time frame, maybe Monday morning. Dwayne, I want to talk to you about final corn yield here. I had the opportunity to travel from Des Moines to Chicago along I-80, I-88. It was beautiful. Corn looks gorgeous. You could tell there were some late planted spots, but it was coming up really, really nice. That's the eastern corn belt. I've heard things look really good. I've seen it with my own eyes. How do things look out west? Dwayne, what are you seeing in your backyard there in northeast South Dakota? Honestly, South Dakota looks pretty darn good, too. We've traveled up and down the state last couple of weeks with all these baseball tournaments, and we're, we're behind a little bit. But, I mean, this hot weather is what we need if the crop's behind. We could use some more rain, no doubt about that. But there's pop-up thunderstorms that seem to hit, and it seems like if you wait your turn patiently, you'll get it eventually. Uh, yeah, I'm actually leaning towards the national yield being from that 177 to a 180 right now because of mainly what you said, a, a very key state of Iowa is sitting at, what, 81% good to excellent. And, you know, North Dakota, we can be struggling a little bit there, but it's not going to pull down the national average if Iowa is that good. That's the truth, Dwayne. Looking over at the livestock markets, have we seen much cash trade develop so far yet this week? I, the, the little bit that I have seen has been a little lower, 2 to $3 lower in the north, about a buck lower in the south. But remember, we still got that big difference between the north and south with a big premium to the northern feedlots. Uh, got that cattle market up this morning, which is pretty interesting because we got some big reports this afternoon, the cattle on feed report and the cattle inventory report this afternoon. Uh, looking for placements to be down, but so is the trade. I, I think we're finally going to start to see this herd liquidation come to the cattle on feed report that we've been talking about for nearly a year now, I think. And we'll certainly see that liquidation there in the inventory report, wouldn't you expect, Dwayne? 
I sure think so. Uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to calculate and hard to guess. And it, I know we're bringing in more cattle from Canada than we had in prior years, so that's that'll be tweaked in there a little bit. But man, with all this drought we've had in different areas, I think we forced more cattle into feedlots early. That's why the cattle on feed reports remain bearish. But boy, eventually, I think it really is going to catch up to us here. And even if we are headed into recession, I think you're going to see a a live cattle market that actually rallies into it. That will be interesting. You know, I was talking with Max Armstrong yesterday, pasture and rangeland in Texas at 82% poor to very poor, Dwayne. That is not ideal down there for those cattle producers. Dwayne Bussey, Bolt Marketing, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here. Always appreciate your insight on these markets, Dwayne. Yeah, thanks, Mike. And folks, stick with us. We're going to talk with Troy Breedenkamp, the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Renewable Fuels Association when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in to AOA the first Wednesday of every month to hear from the National Corn Growers Association in our new segment, The Monthly Grind. NCGA is made up of nearly 40,000 members. And, you know, of that, there's more corn farmers that pay dues into checkoffs. And NCGA manages it with the staff in St. Louis and in D.C. here. We get together, we have the action teams that the officers, John Linder, Chris Edgington, Tom Hegg put together. And we bring everybody's ideas together. And whether you're a small state, a big state, whether you're interested in livestock, new usage, ethanol, everything comes together here. We talk. It's kind of that clearinghouse where all the ideas come together. And, it, you know, it's been done since, um, you know, NCJ was founded in 1957. So it's very important that... Uh, we have that one voice. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. We gather together in communities across the nation to remember and honor, to celebrate and support, to light the night. Join us as we lift our lanterns high in order to move toward a world free of blood cancers. Join us as we light the night for a loved one. Join us. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Our mission is to cure leukemia, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease, and myeloma. Our aim is to improve the quality of life of patients and their families. Join us. We are LLS, and when we walk, cancer runs. Join your community and help bring light to the darkness of cancer. Join us as we light the night. Find your local event at lightthenight.org. That's lightthenight.org. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. 
And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Appreciate you having or taking the time to join us here on this Friday. And taking a look at the world of agriculture and the places where agriculture mixes in and with the broader economy, one place we have seen that interaction a lot this past year is in fuel for our vehicles, as gas pumps, as prices at the pump continue to rise. Ethanol offered an affordable solution at the pump, and Joe Biden recognized that approved E15 for sale year-round via an emergency waiver, but now the lawsuits are beginning. Joining me today to bring us up to speed is Troy Breedenkamp. He's the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, Center for Biological Diversity, has filed a lawsuit challenging the E15 waiver. Uh, not entirely unexpected, I would assume, from your perspective? No, certainly not. Um, you know, the Center for Biological Diversity has a long history of uh, really disdain for corn-based ethanol. Uh, they don't like anything, you know, that would resemble today's agriculture. Uh, and they certainly don't like to see ethanol get any kind of an increase in usage. So while you are absolutely correct, uh, it is not unexpected, but it is disappointing because when we look at it from top to bottom, uh, I think we all know ethanol does a great job of not only extending the current fuel supply, but it, it lowers the cost of the pump. Yesterday, I filled up uh, out of sheets here in Virginia for 50 cents a gallon less for E15 than E10. Uh, thank you, sheets, for doing that. Uh, but you see that across the country where you see ethanol blends, higher ethanol blends selling for lower costs at the pump than a conventional fuel and that's just fact you add on top of that obviously the environmental benefit that we know is there uh 50 less carbon uh intensive than conventional fuel and the fact that it's adding to our national security our energy security all those things are the important things that we need to remind not only the epa but but the consumers out there of the good things that ethanol is doing Absolutely. And I think we've seen the consumer adapting to ethanol as, as we look at these blend rates and we look at the consumer's usage here over this past summer. They like those cheaper prices. But we've got to talk about sort of the legal standing of ethanol, because in order for those consumers to have access to it, Troy, particularly over the summer, we've got to be allowed to sell it. So Joe Biden allowed ethanol E15 to be sold year round this year, but it's not permanent. Is that how things stand today? That is exactly how they stand. Uh, the Biden administration uh, saw the benefits of E15. They realized that if they lost it over the summer, that would add a, um, a gap in our fuel. And, and so they did an emergency waiver over this summer. But that's not a permanent fix. We 
lost a court case last July to refiners who who uh, sued against what was then the Trump administration uh, for extending a waiver uh, to E15 uh, for weed vapor pressure. And so because we lost that case, we do need a permanent solution. We're working with the EPA. We're working with some states that are actually petitioning to opt out of that waiver program. So those states will most likely, there's nine of them now, those states will most likely be able to move forward with E15 year-round, but that's not a permanent solution for the country. So we continue to look here in Washington and on Capitol Hill for opportunity to get some sort of a legislative resolution. Until then, we're going to be working the regulatory route at the EPA on a state-by-state basis and potentially even on a national basis where they can do a national rulemaking to help alleviate this, this issue for year-round E15. Now, that state-by-state approach is interesting. Troy, could you lay out how would that work? Different states would have different uh, waivers or or RVP allowances to allow ethanol to be sold in those specific states? Yeah, so basically the Clean Air Act allows for a state to petition the EPA to opt out of the RVP waiver for E10. So if you opt out of the RVP waiver for E10, then you're going to have uh, vapor pressure parity or or equality, if you will, between E10 and any higher blend. So it it removes that that waiver for E10. The fuel coming into that state would need to be one pound lower in vapor pressure, which is easily done, uh, and it's just for the summer months. And then that fuel would then obviously get blended up with E10 or E15 or any higher blend. That's what those states are are doing. Instead of having this uh, uh, arbitrary barrier to E15 over the summer, they're saying let's treat E10 and E15 the same. That's what that opt-out for those nine states will do. And we think more states will actually be adopting that, but, but importantly, the nine states that are doing that opt-out represent about 60% of all E15 fuel pumps in the United States. So it is a substantial amount of the E15 sales, which is an important place for us to start. It certainly is. You want to be able to to sell the product where the product exists to be sold. That certainly makes some sense. Troy, on the E15 emergency waiver, that runs for the remainder of the summer. Is there any possibility that the courts could throw that out before it expires here uh, at the end of the summer? No, because even if they did, there you know everything is on a legal time frame here. So there would be an appeal to anyone that would be throwing a lawsuit in like we saw the center of biological diversity doing that takes time we really just need to make it to september 15th these are 20-day extensions that the epa is working under we see nothing that will change that throughout the course of the summer driving season so we feel very confident that we're going to have e15 available as it is right now should be available through the remainder of the summer driving season And then after September 15th, that emergency goes away. It's no longer needed. The vapor pressure limitation is no longer there. And then we have about nine months, obviously, to get some sort of permanent solution before we hit next summer's driving season. So there's a lot of work yet to do, but people that are enjoying E15 today should be able to have it for the rest of the summer.
All right, that is a relief right there. We can continue to save that money. I want to come back with a little longer term look, Troy, at I suppose it's the education component that we we need to ramp up there in, in D.C. and in urban areas more broadly. In the lawsuit from the Center for Biological Diversity's website, they note that, quote, because this corn is grown for fuel, there are fewer restrictions on the use of pesticides and fertilizers, which run off into nearby streams and rivers, blah, blah, blah. Is there an actual belief that this corn that is being ground into ethanol is being specifically produced for ethanol and it has some different rules and regulations? Is that how they really understand the system? Well, I don't know if that's how the Center for Biological Diversity understands it, but it's not the way that it really takes place. And, and I don't think that the common citizen or even the common legislator up here believes that. Uh, there isn't a, a different set of rules for corn that is grown for ethanol versus corn that is grown for anything else. So they all have to meet the you know regulatory criteria. But but Mike, there was a ton of misinformation within that that um, that that lawsuit filing. You, you know they they harken back to the 2018 triennial review. Well. When you look at that triennial review, it was in, in large part influenced by uh, some research done by one Tyler Lark, and, and that's a name that, that we know more recently from the University of Wisconsin. He's the author of a the latest study that is full of, of bad science and uh, misinformation, and uh, by the way, paid for by another environmental group, National Wildlife Federation. So there's a lot of connecting of the dots, and that is part of our job. We definitely need to be able to point out um, you know, where is this information or bad information coming from, from the environmental side? Um, and most likely you can connect those dots and you start to paint that picture that, that these are really people, these are really organizations that, that A, don't like today's modern agriculture, and they certainly don't like the use of ethanol uh, in, in today's fuel supply for whatever reason. It, it, it's a head scratcher for, for me, but we got to continue to come back and tell them, just because 40% of the corn crop begins its processing in an ethanol plant, everyone needs to know that every part of that corn kernel is beneficially reused. The distiller's grain, it optimizes the protein. So the protein value goes in, into the feed supply. We're pulling out corn oil and using it for renewable diesel and biodiesel. Not a, not a, not a piece of that corn kernel is, is, is wasted. So Again, that, that is an educational component. You're absolutely correct and, and something that we are continually trying to do to make sure not only lawmakers, but, but you know, consumers, you know, and American, you know, voters know what is fact, what is fiction. We feel really good about where the science is from our perspective. Fantastic, folks. We've been talking to Troy Breedenkamp, the Vice President of Government Affairs at the Renewable Fuels Association. Troy, thanks for joining in and thanks for fighting the good fight to get the ethanol information that's needed out there to the public. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk dairy with Tanner Emke of CoBank when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. 
The American Coalition for Ethanol is hosting its 35th annual conference in Omaha, Nebraska, Wednesday, August 10th through Friday, August 12th. This must-attend event for industry leadership features timely updates on ethanol public policy, market development, board of director training, and more. This event combines the detail of high-level training courses with all the fun of a family reunion. For event details, visit ethanol.org. That's ethanol.org. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, soybeans on the back of bean oil moving to the upside with double-digit strength. The wheat market double digits lower. Sharp losses, in fact, in all three wheat classes with the corn market caught largely in the middle here so far today. And we see, of course, uh, the markets moved lower at the close yesterday with the news of that UN-brokered deal to allow safe passage of Ukrainian grain cargoes with a control inspection center located in Istanbul, Turkey, staffed by officials from all sides. That agreement set to be signed here today. That's a wait on the wheat market. September Chicago wheat has taken back all its war premium and then some. Now, Russia, of course, still needs to uphold its end of the bargain by not firing on said ships coming out of those ports or attacking the opened-up ports with the war raging on as intensely as ever. We're also firing up a bit more active precipitation pattern in the Midwest over the next 10 days with coverage appearing decent in the near term, though heavy and widespread amounts are still not in the forecast for the heart of the Corn Belt. Now, it remains to be seen if rains will be just in time or not, coupled with temps finally cooling off a bit after tomorrow's peak. Numbers right now, September quarter one higher, 576 at three quarters. August soybeans up 15 at a quarter, 1433 and three quarters. August bean meal up 70 cents a ton, 435.10. Bean oil August up 149 points, 60.09. September Chicago wheat 29 at three quarters lower, 776 and a half. September KC wheat 32 lower, 829 and a quarter. Spring wheat September down 27 at three quarters, 884 and three quarters. Livestock trade mixed to higher ahead of the cattle on feed, cattle in inventory and cold storage reports out after the close today august live cattle up 117 136 90 august feeders up 87 179 15 august hogs up 72 117 this is aoa i'm jesse allen reporting Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council.
This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You know, over the past two years, nearly every single agricultural commodity has seen incredible volatility in its markets. And that is certainly true in the dairy space. COVID shut down the schools. The dairy market fell apart. We wondered what we were going to do with all this milk. Folks were at home. They were cooking a lot. They're using lots of milk. Demand skyrockets. Now here we are, two years post-COVID. How is the dairy industry faring? Well, Tanner Emke, the lead economist for Dairy and Specialty Crops at CoBank, did some digging into the space, and he's joining us today to talk about what he's learned. Tanner, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks, Mike. Uh, Great to be here. Let's talk about the big trends in dairy. Tanner, I pulled up class three milk and it looks like we have seen quite a sell-off in the sector since the start of summer. What has changed in the dairy producing space? Well, let's first uh, back up a bit and take a look at uh, what's going on in the larger commodity space first. We've seen a huge sell-off across the board, across all commodities, whether you're talking milk or corn or uh, energy prices or metals, there's a lot of speculative selling going on here. And unfortunately, dairy has caught up, uh, has been caught up uh, with that selling. So that's been a big part of it. But I, there's a few other things I think that are uh, fundamentally perhaps uh, that are underlying some of the selling. And that is this fear that the consumer is going to be consuming uh, less dairy products. They're going to be uh, pushing back on uh, what they buy at the grocery store because of inflation, something we're all dealing with these days. We're dealing with higher gas prices, higher rents, things like that. And uh, the American dollar just doesn't go as far as it used to when you've got inflation uh, in the last uh, the last month at 9.1%. So uh, there's that pressure right now for consumers to be pushing back at the grocery store. Uh, they don't want to eat out as much uh, and so uh, consumption there is going to be uh, is going to be coming down for some products. Now that being said, uh, dairy products are typically a, a value purchase, uh, generally speaking. Now you're going to see some trading down uh, in the dairy case, or the or people walking from the uh, cheese case over to the dairy case, where instead of buying, for instance, smoked Gouda cheese they're going to buy instead perhaps a brick of Monterey Jack, okay? So those, sure. it's a value purchase for a lot of consumers. And so that demand, I think, is going to hold strong. Uh, and you can see some of this reflective of what's going on in cheese right now. Cheese prices are down. But I think that's also partially because we've just got so much cheese in this country. We've got a lot of uh, cheese processing capacity. Those cheese makers uh, have been buying a lot of milk to keep those plants running. And as a result, uh, there is a, a lot of cheese out there in cold storage. And so that's one fundamental reason why cheese prices have come down. And that has contributed a little bit to that, uh, uh, to class three coming down. 
Tanner, I want to come back to the demand story there for a little bit. You mentioned 9.1% inflation there in the month of June. We saw 8 point whatever percent in May. We saw 8 point whatever percent in uh, April. We've seen this inflation, particularly in the food space for nine months now. Has it already started to impact demand for dairy or are consumers so far holding steady with their consumption? It depends upon the uh, the product, you know. You know the uh, cheese per consumption. I, like I said, uh, at large, that has held steady. Actually, increased a little bit uh, per capita or on sales. Uh, butter, on the other hand, has come down a little bit. Uh, butter prices are um, extremely high, uh, and consumers perhaps are doing some trading down or. Uh, moving to some alternative products or just consuming less, perhaps uh, maybe doing less, uh, maybe using less butter on their pancakes, for instance. Uh, so there's, uh, there's a number, it's not across the board, it's by category that we're seeing some trading around and some shifting uh, at retail. Uh, so going forward, what does this look like? Well, if indeed we have seen uh, inflation peak, and we, we need to see the numbers coming uh, going forward uh, in the next few months. And critical to this conversation of inflation is gas prices, and we've seen gas prices starting to uh, inch down. Uh, that it conceivably will be positive uh, for dairy consumption. Uh, people are going to have more disposable income there uh, to spend at the grocery store. Perhaps they might be uh, more comfortable going out. Uh, to restaurants where cheese cheese is kind of used almost on every single dish. Uh, next time you go out to a, a restaurant, take a look at your plate. Uh, it's almost guaranteed cheese is going to be somewhere on the plate. And so, it certainly is. Uh, Thank goodness. Yeah, exactly right. And butter. I mean, everything. That's what keeps the industry going is butter and cheese, right? And so once we perhaps uh, see these numbers uh, ease up on inflation, we might see the consumer a little bit more willing to go out there. Now, you, you got to throw out that caveat with COVID. Uh, you never know what happens with COVID and how consumers want to behave there uh, because we have indeed seen uh, COVID numbers uh, ticking up and in some areas really spiking, in fact. Um, that may drive some consumers home, and that may keep them away from going down to a sit-down restaurant or, or going out to uh, some other uh, quick-service restaurants where uh, they would perhaps uh, consume more cheese, and instead they're going to opt to stay home. Uh, so there may be consumer trends there that impact uh, consumption, so that's one thing we got to keep an eye on. But I would say as well also that our exports have been very strong, and we really can thank Mexico for that, too. And so that, uh, with the United States being a value purchase on the global market with cheese, especially, and butter, but especially cheese, that's, being, that's helping draw down some of our cheese stocks. Uh, but at the, at the end of the day, when you look at the numbers, we've still got a lot of cheese in cold storage. And so uh, that would be one bearish factor going, uh, going forward. All right. So we're seeing consumers change the way they behave based on price signals. Tanner, I've got to imagine the dairy industry has changed based on the price signals they've gotten for inputs. What is happening with the overall dairy herd domestically? Well, we've seen uh, a slight increase uh, in the last uh, milk production report. Uh, the uh, total U.S. dairy herd uh, just picked up by a couple thousand head. We're still well below where we were uh, a year ago in uh, total size of the herd. So the numbers that we're seeing right now are indicating that there's some slow um, 
expansion going on that uh, out there that's mostly going to be in the central states, places like Texas and South Dakota, uh, because although we have seen in the past uh, you know, extremely high milk prices, feed prices and labor costs are still uh, very high as well. Now, we've seen corn prices come down. We've seen soybean meal prices come down alongside the price of uh, milk. Uh, so really, the conversation here is, what is the margin on that? What is the margin that the farmer is making? And right now, with feed costs still fairly high, alfalfa prices, uh, you know, sometimes in some areas trading, you know, three or four hundred dollars for premium hay out west, especially where we've been dealing with drought. Uh, that has really been eroding uh, farmer profit margins, and that is curtailing expansion. In some areas, we're seeing uh, the cost of production is still above. Um, of futures prices. So we'll see what goes on here uh, going forward. Um, USDA has, has really pulled back uh, their uh, predictions on um, milk production expansion. Uh, they've got become a lot more conservative uh, because of uh, the feed costs out there and, and the ongoing drought out west. So uh, I think uh, you have to look at it state by state, and some areas will be con will be expanding, uh, especially in those areas where farmers have more control over their feed costs. Um, the business models typically where uh, farmers are growing their own silage and growing their own hay, they have more control over that cost. And so they're going to be in a better position to expand later. They are, but you mentioned Texas being one of the places that saw an expansion. Of course, the Texas panhandle in the grips of a multi-year drought. Tanner, do you think the dairy industry, if this thing persists across the central and southern plains, is the dairy industry going to look to move farther east here to find water? Well, you're going to see areas, uh, I'd say that's a great, that's a great question, you know, uh, Droughts uh, come and go. Obviously, the drought in Texas extremely bad, and uh, really with uh, La Nina uh, expected to continue through uh, this year and into 2023, that's a concerning situation. Obviously, now uh, it depends upon how much water you have access to. If you're if you're irrigating um, out of uh, the Ogallala down in uh, uh, Texas, then you've got a more reliable water supply. If you're dryland farming, good luck. Uh, you're going to have to rely on that uh, that groundwater resource uh, to get you through it. Uh, but you know, longer term, you know, you're, we've seen this trend uh, of the herd migrating away from uh, the high populated states along the eastern seaboard and indeed uh, the western uh, coast as well uh, in California and those herds of migrating inland where you've got lower labor costs, lower land costs. And so as a result, that's going to attract um, uh, herd expansion, okay, just because the cost is lower. And at the same time, uh, you're seeing uh, cheese expansion, uh, or ex excuse me, expansion with uh, cheese processors and their other dairy processors in those areas. So that further uh, incentivizes uh, expansion in those areas where you're seeing uh, um, uh, dairy uh, dairy processors uh, you know, continuing with their expansion plans. So I think sure. longer term, that is the trend indeed. But uh, it's going to be hard to see anything move further, really uh, move to the eastern seaboard. I, I don't see that happening. It's going to keep moving inland, especially to the Midwest. Two too populated out east, I would imagine. Tanner Emke, lead dairy economist at CoBank. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
great to be with you. Thanks. And folks, stick around. We're going to have some more AOA coming up after this, and it's going to be hot this weekend. We'll talk about that when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Tune in to AOA the first Wednesday of every month to hear from the National Corn Growers Association in our new segment, The Monthly Grind. NCGA is made up of nearly 40,000 members. And, you know, of that, there's more corn farmers that pay dues into checkoffs. And NCGA manages it with the staff in St. Louis and in D.C. here. We get together, we have the action teams that the officers, John Linder, Chris Edgington, Tom Haig put together, and we bring everybody's ideas together. And whether you're a small state, a big state, whether you're interested in livestock, new usage, ethanol, everything comes together here. We talk. It's kind of that clearinghouse where all the ideas come together. And, it, you know, it's been done since, um, you know, NCJ was founded in 1957. So it's very important that... Uh, we have that one voice. This monthly grind recap is sponsored by the National Corn Growers Association. Be sure to tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the monthly grind here on AOA. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. 
The archaeological records suggest that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders. The baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Just a few minutes ago, while we were speaking with Tanner Emke here on AOA, some meetings happened over in Istanbul, Turkey. Yes, that's right. The Russia-Ukraine grain export deal was signed. Uh, we talked about that earlier in the show with Dwayne Bussey, waiting to hear what some of the details were. Well, now that the agreements are signed, everything is public, and we could take a look at some additional facts from this agreement, or at least how this is expected to go. It's worth noting that uh, there were government officials in Istanbul today, both from Kiev representing Ukraine and from Moscow, and they signed parallel agreements. So I don't know if they weren't in the same room, but they each signed uh, separate agreements agreeing that grain exports can begin from three Ukrainian ports. So they've allowed exports from Odessa, from Chornomsk, and from Pivdinia. And I apologize on the pronunciation for any of those, but three, uh, three main Ukrainian ports. All of those ports are currently mined, so those ships aren't coming and going anytime soon. There are mines in the water that restricts the, as Dwayne mentioned earlier in the show, the insurability of these vessels, and it increases the amount of money it is going to take a shipping firm to brave those waters and move into the Black Sea. They they did note during the signing ceremony that this is truly an unprecedented agreement. Two nations at war with one another have, to my knowledge, never signed an agreement to allow for the export of anything from any of those countries. And yet here we have this from Russia and Ukraine. Now, there is a huge caveat to this big agreement. The entire thing hangs on Moscow's security assurances. That's the only body being allowed to grant assurances to these vessels coming and going from Ukrainian ports. And remember, these security advances and guarantees are coming at the same time that Vladimir Putin is bombing schools and is advancing 
farther and farther west into the Ukrainian territory. So there's a lot of questions in the markets about whether or not this grain will actually move. We have not seen the markets fall apart since the signing. Uh, wheat is actually up a little bit from when we spoke to Dwayne. We've put about four cents on the market. September wheat now down 26, 25 cents here in Chicago. But I don't think we are done hearing this story because that was announced uh, right there as that agreement was signed. And then it was announced that Reuters has completed a satellite imagery tracking uh, experiment on a ship that left Russia. This is the SV Nikolay, left Russia on June 18th. It left uh, left from a port, Port Kavkats, carrying allegedly Russian grain. And then they tracked this ship on satellite, leaving that port in Russia, heading to the main grain terminal at Crimea in, in, uh, in Ukraine or in Russian-controlled Ukrainian territory. And it sat at the main terminal there for several days, and then it started rolling out. And Ukrainian officials, Reuters investigators, all believe that this ship did load looted Ukrainian grain at that port in Crimea before moving now to export it. The Ukrainians are calling this looted grain. Moscow, of course, has come out and said that they are not stealing Ukrainian grain, as the ship's tracking system actually shut off for about four days while it was loading grain in Crimea. That is how the international uh, shipping world tracks these vessels and tracks their history. So when that was shut off, there was no record of the ship going to Crimea, which is why Reuters wanted to do their satellite imagery and track the ship. Now they believe that they can show it has loaded Ukrainian grain. So even as perhaps Ukrainian grain starts to leave several ports, it's entirely possible the international community will not want those ships to land in their ports. Turkey sent the SV Nick lay away because they did not want to be involved in an internationalist dispute, perhaps remarketing stolen grain. So even with this agreement in place, it is unlikely that we are going to see large scale movement anytime soon, as Dwayne mentioned early on. But there's other Russia agricultural news. Again, a Russian export driving headlines here in the United States this time. It's UAN. The first shipment of UAN from Russia headed for the United States left Russia here about a month ago. And at that point, when it was leaving Russia, remember we just finished that International Trade Commission agreement on no tariffs for Russian UAN. This ship was headed here fully intended to dock and pay the tariffs if they were in place. Since the ITC made that ruling we talked about with uh, Josh Linville last week, there are no tariffs on Russian UAN imports into this country. So this vessel has now docked. It has brought with it 39,000 tons of UAN. Of course, Russia is one of the main exporters of UAN, and now that they are not going to be facing additional tariffs on the import of that product into the United States, it's very likely that we will see more of these UAN shipments coming out of Russia, both because the world needs the the fertilizer truly for food security, but also because the Russian economy needs money. Remember, Vladimir Putin, I don't believe, is letting grain and fertilizer leave Russia because he is necessarily concerned about the international community. He's letting grains and oil and natural gas and fertilizer leave Russia because he's getting paid for it. And at the end of the day, that's what it comes back to. So I do think we will continue to see more UAN exports. And I, I do think, as, as Dwayne mentioned, Basis finds a way to move grain around the country. So we will likely see some grain coming out of Ukraine, whether or not it comes under this official program that was announced today, this export uh, allowance program. 
remains to be seen. Folks, before we let you go for the weekend, I do just want to remind you all that we are in the midst of summer. And for a lot of us across the central part of the country, we're going to notice it today, tomorrow, and on through Monday. On Monday, we'll be checking in with our friend John Baranek of DTN Weather about how the weather could look over the next week. But for this weekend, folks, if you're going to be outside today, we are calling for high temps. It's going to be up near 100 all the way up into Wyoming. It's these triple digit temps are going to stretch through South Dakota, pretty much all of Nebraska, eastern Colorado, literally all of Kansas. It looks like it's going to see temps over 100 degrees today. Most of Missouri, parts of Iowa, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, all of these places. Folks, if you're going to be outside, be careful. Keep hydrated. Stay in the shade. We want you to come back on Monday. Monday, folks. So stay safe this weekend. We'll see you on Monday. We'll talk politics. We'll talk weather. We'll talk issues that impact agriculture. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.